This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jonathan Cortez, the producer and host of today's episode. And today we'll be talking with poet Ariana Brown about her debut collection of poetry entitled We Are Owed, set to be published by Graveland in July 2021. Ariana Brown is a queer Black Mexican-American poet from the south side of San Antonio, Texas, She is the author of the poetry chapbook Sana Sana by Game Over Books in 2020 and the debut full-length poetry collection We Are Owed, which we will be discussing today. Ariana's work investigates queer Black personhood in Mexican-American spaces, Black relationality and girlhood, loneliness and care. She holds a BA in Mexican-American studies and African diaspora studies from the University of Texas at Austin, an MFA in poetry from the University of Pittsburgh, and an MLS in Library and Information Science from the University of North Texas. Ariana is a 2014 National Collegiate Poetry Slam champion and owes much of her uh, practice to Black performance communities led by Black women poets in the South. She has been writing, performing, and teaching poetry for over 10 years. Lesson plans, Spanish translations of her poems, and other resources are available on her website at arianabrown.com. Ariana, thank you so much for being on air with us today, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm super, super excited to be here and talking about We Are Owed. Um, it's a project that I've been working on for, I want to say, five to six years now. Um, so it's been with me wow. for a while. Yes. Um, and I'm, I'm just really excited to to finally be in a place where I can talk about it with people and and they can get it in their in their own hands pretty soon. Yeah, well, considering that the publish uh, the 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 release date isn't for about another month, I feel very excited to be talking about it so early <laughs> and to have read it so early. Um, but before we get into the book, before we get into the collection, mm-hmm. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, right? Perhaps tell us a bit more about where you grew up, where you went to school, who you worked with, and who you were inspired by, both inside and outside of the academy, right? Uh, mm-hmm. As a poet, I'm sure many of the people who inspire you are not academics, and that's great. I want to hear about that. <laughs> um, and also how, how you came to your artistic practice of writing. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up on the south side of San Antonio, where a lot of my mom's family is from. Um, but I also spent summers in Houston and Galveston, where my dad's side of the family is from. Um, And so I think really crucial to my understanding of race and how I am racialized, um, had to do a lot with with being in different geographical spaces in Texas. Um, But I think really before I started to write about those things, um, I came into the spoken word and slam poetry community um, in San Antonio, Austin, and Houston. So. Uh, for anyone who is a part of the, you know, community performance-based spoken word scenes in these areas, um, they're very, what's the word? They're very, um, 
I can't think of a word to describe him aside from communal, right? Like everyone mm. I knew, um, everyone I knew who was part of that community um, wasn't just a performer, right? Every mm. poet who was in that space was also a workshop facilitator. They were also an event host. They were also an event organizer. They were also a fundraiser. You know, they also did, mm. you know, event promotion. They also picked up kids and took them to the youth slams on Saturday in, in coordinated rides and those kinds of things. Um, and so when I think about how I entered poetry, um, I was, I want to say 16, the first time I performed in a public space in San Antonio at the Luminaria Arts Festival. Um, and that's where I met my first mentor, Vocab. Um, and if you're from San Antonio, you know who Vocab is. Um, um, and if you're not, you should. <laughs> um, but Vocab, she drove me to my first poetry slam. Um, in Austin at the time, because San Antonio didn't have a, a youth poetry slam scene at that time. Um, and it was from there of me actually getting into the competitive part of spoken word, which is slam, right? Like slamming regularly with the goal of making the team that represents that city at nationals. I did that at the youth and collegiate level um, for several years. Um, and then I came back to coach. And so when I think about poetry, it's never in the sense um it's never in the way that people talk about it in the academy, like that image of mm. like the lone writer, you know, like applying for fellowships or kind of writing at their, at their desk in solitude. Um, mm -hmm. For me, poetry has always been about relationships. Um, I have, though sometimes I write alone, um, I edit and I practice and I perform uh, with others. And it's always been that way. Um, so I think it makes sense that when I write, I'm often thinking about the people that I'm writing to, Right. Because in mm. when you're a performer, um, your audience has to be clear because you're literally looking at them in the eyes <laughs> as you're performing your poem. It's not this kind of like um, metaphorical thing um, to consider. So that's kind of how I came into poetry. Um, and I will say one of the things that has stuck with me from that kind of upbringing um, is I think there was a point where I started going to, I started going to poetry slams and after being in them for a while um, and also being an audience member, I felt how strange it was when, when marginalized poets would get up on the mic and start speaking about their oppression in a way mm. that made it seem like they were not talking to me in a way that made it seem like they were talking to the white people in the room or the men in the room um, and it always felt weird to me because I was like, why, why not talk to me? You know, someone who understands mm. what you're saying. Why not? Why re-traumatize me at the expense of educating everyone else? Um, why not care for me? And I think that experience, that kind of discomfort that I felt when I was literally watching someone who shares my conditions not acknowledge my presence in the room, um, that made me feel like I want to write to other people who are like me, who share my experiences, mm. um, because I know they're looking for me too. Wow, um, thank you so much. And I, I, one thing that I was thinking about as you were speaking was like, what does it mean for you to work through in community with, but also work through your identity through the medium of poetry and language and words? And here I wanna take us to one of your poems called Negrita, mm -hmm. because so I was as you were talking, so many of you, so many of your poems um, in this collection are dedicated to somebody or about somebody, right? Mm -hmm. and, or, and so, like, so when you're saying that, like, 
I mean, even even the title, right? We are owed. The we is a plural we, right? It's it's a it's a community, and so 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 I want to, but I want to talk about I want to talk about you working through identity through uh through the medium of of language and words because in this poem Negrita, at the end you say to survive here, Mija, I work on the words, making a list of everything we are owed. What do words mean to you, and what does language mean to you, especially in relation to liberation? Oh, that's so um, so hard to answer because I feel like I go back and forth between feeling like words are everything and then feeling like words are not enough. You hmm. know, um, in this in this moment in this poem that you're talking about, Negrita, in the collection, um, I'm speaking to a younger cousin of mine, um, and we are some of the only Black people on that side of the family, um, and we're in the poem we're engaged in in playing. Loteria with our family, right? Being the only mm-hmm. Black people in the space. And if you've ever played Loteria, you know that um, there's only one Black character um, mm-hmm. and it's El Negrito, right? Not El Negro, mm-hmm. um, El Negrito, the the little Black right. man. Um, right. There are no Black women anywhere. And this is not, um, I'm not interested in, like, I'm not interested in inclusion, right? Like if Black women mm-hmm. were suddenly included included in Loteria, I... I that's not my goal here. Um, right. But I think there is a strange kind of experience from being a black woman playing this game with my cousin, who's a younger black girl um, and feeling um, just feeling distanced or feeling estranged from this experience um, that is supposed to be ours culturally. Um, and I think mm-hmm. in that, in that moment of, of, sitting with my cousin trying to play this game um, and trying to help her understand the Spanish words and all of that. um, It felt to me like a reflection of growing up on the South side of San Antonio or in San Antonio in general um, and being one of the only black people around all of the time um, and constantly being like, this is my context, right? This is, this is home to me and it's familiar and yet it's not comfortable. And why is that? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think the collection kind of opens up from this moment to explore the histories that I've been able to find of Black people who have moved in the same um, geographical spaces through which I have existed in and my cousin has existed in, because that gives me context um, and it helps me understand why people respond to me the way that they do, right? Um, or, or it helps me trace um, an origin, and an Origin stories, I think, are something that I'm very interested in in this collection. Part of it is me, um, you know, coming from Black Studies as as my very first foundational degree. Um, So I'm interested in, like, if I have an interaction with somebody or me and my cousin are, you know, sort of paused in this moment of looking at these these Loteria cards um, and having this question of where are we in this if I can press pause on that moment and zoom out a little bit and try and trace some kind of historical lineage, it helps me to understand my present better. Um, so that's kind of where a lot of the poems in the book come from. Yeah, that's really, that's fascinating to hear because as I was reading through the work and I was taking notes, vigorous notes, like on many of them, I was like, she's she uh ariana is searching for something they're searching for i literally wrote they're searching for a new origin mm-hmm. right an origin yes. that isn't found that, that that isn't found in like for example in this poem right isn't found in loteria and doesn't need to be found in loteria mm-hmm. but there's a different kind of 
um, there's something else that you're searching for in these pages. And I really hope that the readers can come out of this turned upside down because <laughs> mm-hmm. I definitely did. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely did. Um, but Ariana, before we get into it more, I want to ask, so you mentioned that you had been working on this, this collection for about six, seven years. Um, why is now the right time? And perhaps this is a good a good question for many of the poets out there, right? Why is now the right time to release a full collection of poetry for you? Mm. Um, <laughs> because it's done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Finally. finally. Um, yeah, I mean, I still kind of feel like there are things that I know now that I would love to, um, to write further into. Um, but part of me mm. wonders if that's just a separate project now. Um, but I think for a long time I was trying to figure out, um, what the goal of the collection was. And then once I figured out the goal, I was trying to, um, find the missing pieces, uh, in the book, right? What poems am I missing? What parts of the story still need to be included so that this feels like a complete thing for me? Um, so I finally feel like I'm at that point, like the stories that I wanted to tell in this book are told. Um, there's so much more that I could say about everything in the book. Um, but I think also at a certain point, you kind of just have to put your foot down and say, this is it. <laughs> um, but no, I feel really good about it. Yeah, um, I, I agree. And I know, and you cut off there, but you said, put your foot down and say what? Oh, I was saying at a certain point, you just have to put your foot down and say, this is it. You know, I've yeah. said everything that I needed to say. Um, and that's it. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I found so interesting in, in the collection was many of your poems are situated in, 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 in very specific and different geographical regions, right? Texas, mm-hmm. in the EFE, in Mexico, Los mm-hmm. Angeles. Um, and, in, and, and even though, right, you're, you're saying like, I'm in Mexico, I'm in Texas, you make it very clear that all of these sort of nation state constructions mm-hmm. are, are, are very violent empires that have led to your specific identity formation, which I think is very clear and makes it so, um, that's what makes it powerful, right? You talk about how like visiting these different spaces in Mexico um, and your presence in those spaces linked directly back to, to how, you know, you were treated or how your experiences in Texas. And so I'm curious to, 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 for for you to talk more about, Texas, right, as uh, as your sort of um, current home place, as we know, or like the, the, the current formation of Texas and growing up in Texas and what mm-hmm. that meant for you. Um, and then what it was like, because uh, I believe it was study abroad that you were in Mexico, correct? Yes, it was. So what did it mean to be, you know, um, as you identify a queer Black Mexican-American person from mm-hmm. Texas going back to, to Mexico and visiting these different sites, whether it be like a sort of like open market or an indigenous site, like an indigenous like temple site, like all these sorts of things. What was that like for you? Yeah, it was really, um, it was interesting for me because I feel like for, I feel like we get sort of fed this narrative um, of Latinidad when you're in the United States, um, where you think of your heritage country as like the place that is supposed to be the ultimate home, right? You're supposed Mm. to immediately feel this connection to it. You're supposed to feel like you belong and, you know, sort of all these very romantic um, ideas of that. And 
going, I think spending, I spent six weeks in Mexico city in 2016. Um, and it wasn't until I was there that I was like, Oh, I am not Mexican. I'm Mexican American. Um, that felt very different. Um, that difference felt very clear to me. Um, also because like Mexico city is, I'd never been there before. The only parts of Mexico I had been to before had been sort of border towns um, growing up because we, from the South side of San Antonio to Piedras Negras in Tamaulipas is three hours by car. Um, so we had done that as a day trip before, but I had never gone further into, you know, central um, Mexico. So that was my first time. So like even the Spanish was different, the climate was different. Um, it was funny when I told my family that I was going to Mexico City, they were like, oh, you know, um, you know, make sure you pack clothing so you can stay cool because they're used to being, you know, on the border where it's really hot. Mm. Um, so I think there were maybe some assumptions or expectations that I had um, going into it that kind of got turned on their head. Um, it was also interesting too, because every person that we spoke to um, when we were in Mexico City that we told we were from Texas, they were like, oh, like you're, um, what did they say? Like you're Mexicans from the North, (laughs) Um, (laughs) which was also strange, but I, I don't know. I think that I, I mostly did a lot of observing, um, observing how people responded to me, um, how they responded to my Spanish and also how they responded to my blackness, whether they perceived it or not and how their interactions with me changed after they did. Um, But I think generally, even sometimes being in Texas, I have felt like an outsider moving through Mexican and Mexican American spaces um, because of my blackness, right? That somehow always marks me as like being other, as being different, as being confusing for people. Um, and so that was consistent. <laughs> the way that people responded to me as a black woman, the way that people responded to my hair um, was exactly the same. It was just in Spanish. Um, so I don't know. I think when I got back to Texas, um, I felt even more clearly, I think, that I needed to that I needed to and I wanted to do as much research um, and try and find other Black people who have um, connections to Latin America um, Mm. because I think that they know so much more about the limits of Mexican nationalism um, than I was taught to recognize growing up in in Texas. So I think that's the place Mm. where it kind of led me. And so who did you find? Well, this is really beautiful because I found Alan Pelaez Lopez. Um, mm. And they, their work is so important to me, um, mm-hmm. just period as, as an artist. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier um, that you were writing like, like, you know, Ariana is searching for, a new origin or something like that. I, I, I think for a long time, I've also been searching for a community. Like, I think this book is mm-hmm. profoundly about loneliness, um, loneliness mm-hmm. that is produced by anti-Blackness um, and, and, and needing a very specific kind of person um, or people to, to remedy that loneliness in some way. Um, and I feel like Alan as a person and their work um, 
helps me feel less alone in the world and also uh, is always instructive for me. Um, mm. So it felt really good when uh, Alan was one of the last people to look at this manuscript before um, before I said, you know, it's done. Um, and I was very grateful that they wrote the forward for it because I feel like they knew how to contextualize my work before I did even. Mm. Um, so I, I feel like from them, I'm learning to take a lot of cues from from Afro-Indigenous and Afro-Caribbean people specifically. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm just very grateful for that. Yeah, I mean, that, that reminds me, so all of, all of what you're saying reminds me of two people in your work who you write a lot about, who are mm-hmm. Gasparianga and Esteban, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And, 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 and I'm thinking particularly about when you were saying that this book is about, in some ways, as you said earlier, right, community, but also loneliness and how, mm-hmm. how, the, how the very violent histories uh, of empires have produced that exact contradiction, especially amongst the Black diaspora, mm-hmm. through enslavement, through forced and coerced migration, right? Mm-hmm. Always, always, I mean, thinking about Esteban, right? If we, so, um, I, I don't know, do you want to introduce this to Esteban or, or, or how you came upon that, the, this, this historical actor, this historical figure in, in your work and your research and why you decided to write about them? Sure. Um, so I was an undergraduate student at UT taking a class with um, with Dr. Marta Menchaca. Um, mm. And her course was mostly about um, sort of the history of how Mexico became a nation state, right? From like, um, from conquest to independence. So it covered a lot of information. Um, and while she was teaching us um, all of these, you know, um, all of this history, um, she told us about Esteban Dorantes, um, who was a person that I had never heard of before, which was wild too to me, right? Growing up in Texas, um, having studied Texas history as part of my public school curriculum, um, Esteban was an enslaved African um, brought to originally to help colonize Florida, right? Um, but the men who owned him and the men who were on those ships um could not survive the the waters. And so they ended up shipwrecked in Galveston, Texas, uh, which is where my father is from. And I was interested in this history because something that's always felt strange to me in Texas is that I feel like Mexican and Mexican-American history is always taught as being very separate from African-American history. And I feel like mm-hmm. this moment of Esteban, who was enslaved by conquistadores showing up in Galveston, Texas, um, a few centuries before the Juneteenth proclamation in Galveston, Texas, felt like they were in conversation with each other. Um, and so uh-huh. I wanted to put that in the manuscript, right? That's also the place where my family is from. Um, and so it's a place that I felt and feel a deep connection to. My great grandmother still lives in Galveston and I spent summers there as, as a child. Um, and so when I learned that Esteban was one of the first people like, to walk the land, one of the first black people to walk the land in Texas that we know of, yeah. um, and that he helped the Spaniards construct a map of Texas. It also had me thinking about um, the violence of colonization, of cartography, um, and also questioning how much agency he had, right? Like he was a scout. Mm-hmm. Um, he would negotiate with indigenous people um, and and leave 
markers um, behind. He would he was an advanced scout, so he would walk days ahead of the four um, survivors of the shipwreck and leave markers behind him to let them know if the area was uh, friendly or um, hostile. Um, and so I don't know. I also have a lot of questions about him because this is the thing, right? When you're working with an archive of slavery is that so much of the information that you can find, none of it is from the point of view of the enslaved person. Um, mm-hmm. And often there are very little documents, right? Or um, little, if any, surviving images of them. So for both Esteban and Gaspar Yanga, from what I know, I have not been able to find any surviving images of them. So there is also this kind of elusiveness, right? Where where I, I'm interested in this history, I have a connection to it, and I am receiving it in pieces. Um, and th- th- I think that's part of the the loneliness too. Mm, yeah, it's it's a sort of a historical loneliness. Like when I, I'm thinking also just about art, like just about archives. If e- if even there's nothing from Esteban's or Gasparianga's perspective, right? They're still kind of the only ones who are mentioned, if at all. Right. I, you, there's a there's a poem in here where you, you're talking about Gaspar Yanga, and I and please I want you to introduce us to or introduce the audience to who Yanga is. But you talk mm-hmm. like you talk about like were there any women? You know, like you talk mm-hmm. about like who are the other people that are with you in this maroon community? Yes. Um. And I want I want to you spend actually you you there are like I think five or six poems about Yanga Gaspar Yanga. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about them. They're amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I. Um, so this is interesting too, right? Because um, we were talking about the study abroad I did in, in Mexico City. The very last week that I was there, um, a friend of mine who was on the the study abroad with me, one of my only allies, um, she sent me a link to a YouTube video. Um, that's written and illustrated and produced by um, David Heredia. It's like a three-minute um, illustrated video that tells the story of Gaspar Yanga. Um, I have never seen resources about, well, at that point, I had never seen resources about Yanga aside from this video. Um, so it was, again, a moment of being like, as someone who is very engaged in learning about the history of Mexican-Americans, of enslaved Africans, um, having never come across this history again, just kind of getting it in little bits and pieces from this beautifully done YouTube video um, that told the story of Yanga. So Yanga was um, an enslaved African person brought to Mexico City um, and enslaved in a sugar plantation in Veracruz. Um, He escaped and hid in the mountains for 30 years. in the meantime, continuing to sort of attack uh, the Spaniards who were passing through. Um, and after a, a very prolonged period of, um, of building a maroon settlement of black and indigenous escape, escapees, maroons, um, the Spaniards eventually granted freedom to Yanga and, the, and everyone in the settlement in exchange for them um, stopping the attacks on, on passing Spaniards. Um, and this settlement, from what we know, appears to be the first free African settlement in the Americas. Um, mm. 
and is not widely known. <laughs> it was wild to me when I found out. You know, I had been in Mexico City, one of the major slave ports of Mexico during the transatlantic slave trade, uh, and I had never heard anything about him. Um, and it really made me emotional learning about this during my final week after having experienced, you know, the anti-blackness, the loneliness, um, the questions and curiosity. Um, it felt so helpful and grounding to know that another black person had been in this space before me in this particular way. Um, someone who was a, a liberator. Um, and sort of because of that, and I don't, think that our experiences in Mexico were the same in any kind of way. Um, but what I'm trying to mm -hmm. say is that they are related to one another. Um, and it was mm -hmm. from that relation um, that I wanted to write to Yanga. Um, because again, there's not very much that I know about him. Um, I, I couldn't really write sort of biographical poems about Yanga, um, but I could write poems that explored my relationship with Yanga. Um, mm -hmm. And I think in that way, um, I tried really hard to not assume anything about him that I do not actually have access to, to knowing. Um, mm -hmm. And I tried as hard as I could to, um, to not idolize him, to not take away his humanity, um, but to engage with him as a person, as someone um, that I feel I'm capable of, of, of feeling love for and, and appreciation for, and I'm curious about. There's a lot of things that I would love to know about him um, that I don't know if I ever will, but I think that poetry can be a place where I can ask those questions. Yeah, that's the really beautiful thing about what you've done specifically with Gasparianga, because I mean, my favorite, my favorite in the collection are, are titled Field Notes, Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the sort of poem to Yanga titled, uh, titled Yanga. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also a, a poem in here titled Why I Want to Know What Yanga Looked Like. And it's this beautiful meditation about what he might have looked like. And it's this, it's this kind of like, um, you know, historical fiction and art artistic practice that, that you know, uh, people like C.D.L. Hartman and Dion Brand sort of both do in their work mm -hmm. that you're bringing to poetry that is so powerful. And so mm -hmm. what was it like for you to try to envision a photograph of Yanga or, or their, their bodily presence? I think um, <laughs> we were talking earlier about origin stories. When I think of Yanga, it's hard for me to not also think of my father um, mm -hmm. who like Yanga, I have never met in the physical world um, who has been dead for, for as long as I've been alive um, and who I have a lot of curiosity about. Um, there are people whose voices I have never heard, um, whose laughs I have never heard, um, whose you know bodily movements and, and their natural way of being in the world I, I will not ever see. Um, mm. And so I think from just a really genuine place of curiosity and wonder um, I think that's how I, I think about Yanga. Um, there are obviously photos of my father, so I have an idea of what he looked like um, at okay. 22 when he passed. Um, but with Yanga, there's even less information. There's, there are even less details that I have access to. Um, and so in thinking about that, that kind of space of, of loss, 
um, I think about Yanga as a person who maybe has a gap tooth. Um, mm. And for me, that's kind of like, it's, it's, it's an opening, it's a place of possibility. Um, and I think I wrote this poem before I read Dion Brand's A Map to the Door of No Return, but I think mm-hmm. that the gap in Yanga's teeth is also in some ways a physical manifestation of the door of no return. Um, mm. So I think it, it's it's a lot for me. I don't know, I don't know a lot about Yanga. This is what I do know, and a, a lot of the rest of it I have to invent. Um or imagine, and I think that that can be a practice of a practice toward liberation or a practice toward freedom, of of being engaged in that kind of active, creative um, imagining mm. that is still careful with others. Yeah, I mean, I, as I was reading the poems about about Yanga, I, I I was getting a sense, you know, like that. Not only is Gaspar Yanga somebody who lived in history and someone who who fought back against colonialism and empire and violence, um, but also someone to you his who at least in this in the in the poem Yanga sings me to sleep is there's 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 a spiritual aspect to what I was reading. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of um, the, the way the cadence is set out, the way the kind of the 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 wording is 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 on the page. I, I was like, what does Yanga mean to your spiritual life? I guess is 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 a way to phrase it. Mm-hmm. This kind of goes back to um, thinking about slam and performance, but um, I remember I remember telling Makurandera once that one of the reasons that I loved going to national poetry slam competitions um because they happen once a year right um and there's different ones mm-hmm. um they're different every year they're always in a different host city it's always a, a different set of people competing um but there's i was explained to her usually they're anywhere from three to five days of, of this kind of festival right and i was trying to explain to her how it felt every day just the energy in the space uh, was so i had told her i felt it felt very heightened um, that I could feel all of my senses very deeply. Um, and I felt very alive during, you know, those, those few days at a time. And when I came home from them, I always felt so depleted and so sad because I missed feeling that. Um, and she thought about that for a moment. And then she told me, um, well, you were in ceremony. Mm. Um, and, I think about that a lot. Um, I think about the spiritual capacity of performance all the time. Um, I think I think that people have to be careful about what we invoke when we are speaking, when we are performing, when we are writing, um, because none of it is neutral. Mm. Um, Slam taught me that, um, and I think. What I learned from my curandera is that um, I, for me, poetry feels very tied to the spiritual and ancestral worlds. Um, so I can't just say anything. Do you know what I mean? Like I yeah, have to, yeah. I have to be careful. I have to move with intention. Um, and so it doesn't feel strange to me to write a lullaby that Yanga sings to me mm. at night. Um, 
I think there there is an intimacy in that. Um, and so, yeah, what does Yanga mean to my spiritual practice? Um, he's an integral part of it, or my spiritual practice is an, is an integral part of how I engage with Yanga, um, because I also um. wanted to be, I also wanted to be careful, right? Because I don't, I don't think it's appropriate for me to to invoke Yanga in my poems and ask him to do more work. He did so much mm. while he was alive. Um, Mike Urandera always says that you you cannot you cannot ask for something without offering something. Um, and so the poems, I try really hard to make sure that they are an offering to Yanga as well. Mm. Well, thank you, thank you for that, Ariana. Um, I can't wait for people to engage with these poems. I really can't. I think I really I think it's going to be incredibly generative. Um, I have I want to ask about the collection as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? Like which poems in the collection um, do you really feel get to the center of the work? Right? Can you maybe walk us through um, one or two of the poems that you're like? This is if people don't read every poem. These are the two or these are the three or whatever. Like this is the crux of this is if academic term, I can't think any other way, but this is the, this is the thesis statement of the collection. Mm. Um, What do you think that is for you? Well, they're all important. (laughs) Uh, No, I'm, 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 I'm kidding. Um, I think, yeah, I think the, the Yanga poems feel very much to me like the the heartbeat of the book. Um, but there are also poems that come in the third section. Um, there's there's a, a set of poems that I don't talk about a lot because they're kind of hard to read aloud. Um, I think they work better if you see them on the page. But there's um, a set of poems uh, that build to a poem called Loteria de la Negra, Um uh-huh. In which, uh, and, and prior to that, there's there's poems um, that imagine the the black girls and black women um, in my family, um, and and that are, are are really close friends of of my family. Um, that I kind of speak about them as though they were loteria cards, but they're not they're not um, still they're moving. So I'm describing them as they are. Um, I'm describing them in very visual ways so that if you wanted to to imagine them as a loteria card you could you would know the colors and 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 the shapes of things um Mm. but i'm describing sort of everyday acts that they're doing or moments that we've shared together moments that i'm i'm sort of looking at them and um appreciating them and noting and observing um the kind of quiet things about them um and then it builds to loteria de la negra where um if you've ever played the posito in Loteria, um, you play for the four squares in the middle. Um, and so I imagine mm-hmm. them as the four squares in the middle, literally centering them on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, <laughs> this is kind of, it's kind of an ode to my younger cousin um, that I spoke about earlier because she is super competitive. <laughs> and every time we play Loteria at my, at my aunt's house, she always wants me to help her um, so that... Mm-hmm. <laughs> So she has a better chance of winning. Um, and so I think just that act of, of playing the game with her, even though I'm not very invested in, in Loteria, period, um, that act of playing the game with her to show her that I love her and that I care about her wants and needs, um, for me, was a way to 
these poems were a way of, of me sort of extending that um, into my writing practice. Um, because I think in a lot of ways, um, some of the things I was looking for in the collection are things that I, some of them are things that I already had, um, things that I already had access to, but I didn't know the right way of, of looking at them. Um, and so none of the Black girls and women that I describe in these Loteria poems are um, are Latinx, except for one. Um, mm. and I think that's, that's really where the, the connection to like black relationality became important to me, mm. um, to think about connecting with African descended peoples across diaspora, um, without the need for, um, without the need to share the same nation state or the shame, the same, um, uh, culture, um, in order to sort of make that connection. Yeah. I, I would actually love to hear more about the sort of intellectual process of, I mean, cause you're, you're on a podcast with me, right? New books mm-hmm. and Latino studies, but this, this, this collection of poetry is much more than, than just that, right? Mm-hmm. What is, what is the sort of intellectual um, strands that you're weaving together specifically in relation to African and African diaspora studies? Sure. I tell Alan this all the time. I, I always felt like the the central question of Black studies was how do we get to liberation? Um, and every other question kind of branched off from that, right? Like what are the precedents? What have people tried in the past? What has worked? What hasn't? What do we have questions about? Um, and something that felt very um, disarming uh, when I started taking courses in Mexican-American studies is I felt the central question of Mexican-American studies was who are we as people? Um, and I, I have a lot of reservations about that because that's not a a politic. Do you know what I mean? And, and I think as Mm -hmm. someone, Mm -hmm. (laughs) someone who feels very done with narratives of, of authenticity, um, Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to go back to that question of how do we get to liberation? Um, and part of that, part of that is like, how do we find, um, how do how do we find our our people? Um, how do we find the people that help us survive our current conditions so that we can make it to liberation? Um, and how do we learn to care for them better? Um, which is, again, I think something I learn all the time from Alan that I'm reminded of. Um, and I think I really I wanted to be really clear in this book of trying to reject that that question uh, of Mexican American studies of of who are we as people. So I mm-hmm. I did not want to write poems that were. I didn't want to write definition poems, right? Like I am a Mexican from uh, a Mexican American from from Central Texas, and this is my experience, and these are the foods I eat, and this is the music I listen to. I didn't want to write <laughs> those poems because th- that is not my my politic. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I don't think that's useful to get toward liberation. Um, so right. these poems are, they're not trying to be cultural markers. They're not trying to, um, be marketable. <laughs> I am constantly harassed by Mexican nationalists on social media mm-hmm. because of how often I talk about blackness. Um, and that's fine. Um, but I wanted to be really clear in this collection that my commitment is to other black people. Um, mm-hmm. And I think too early in the collection, I'm, I talk a lot about 
um, I talk about Esteban, I talk about Yanga. And so I think in the Loteria poems too, I wanted to be clear that, um, that black women and girls for the most part have been the people to sustain me and to make sure that I am okay and alive and that I have what I need in the world. Um, and even in the the last poem to Yanga, I, I ask him questions about gender um, and sexuality mm-hmm. because these are things that that we map onto people, you know, onto historical figures. But I have no idea how Yanga conceptualized himself. Um, right. So I, I I wanted there to be an an opening for that as well. That that anything that leads us toward liberation also has to consider. Um, power relationships of all kinds, right? Not just not just with regard to race, but also with regard to gender and sexuality as well. Yeah, I, I, I'm spinning. <laughs> my mind is spinning with, with what, everything you've just said because I think, I think that is precisely my frustration with, you know, Mexican-American studies, Latino studies, Chicano mm-hmm. studies, um, is that there's not, there's not an urgency towards liberation because mm-hmm. there's no need to be as non-Black people, as non, as sort of like U.S.-based, non-Indigenous, non-Black people. There's no mm-hmm. urgency towards liberation because we're always sort of moving towards whiteness. I mean, like, the, mm-hmm. that's kind of, that, that's, and I, I, yeah, that's, that's really frustrating. Um, <laughs> but that's for another podcast. Uh, um <laughs> But but I but I think that your your it, it's so clear. Never once did I did I think like oh this is a represent like this is a poetry collection about representation about like being black and Mexican American and trying to fit in and whatever and in a community like this was very much like as you said right your politic of liberation was very much all over the pages because each one was not was about like moving towards moving away and moving towards something that is beyond nation that is beyond you know gender that is beyond kind of um and you know it's just it's 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 beyond how we conceive of our world nowadays there's a even in, in when you're talking about Gaspar Yanga you talk um you have this line and I'm going to flip through my pages and I know there's going to be a lot of noise but you say something like teach me how to live beyond nation. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And that's so, that's such a, that's such a heavy task. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as you said, like these are offerings to young gun in ways that hopefully that, that connection between you two grows stronger. Um, But I'm, 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 I'm really interested in, how you see this this collection of poetry moving through the world? You know, it's going to be published in about a month. Um, mm-hmm. That we're recording today on on, on June sixteenth. It'll be published July 29th. Mm-hmm. What are your hopes for it? Oh, what are my hopes for it? I hope that um, I hope that I said the right things. I hope that I asked the right questions. Um, I hope that I hope that I continue to learn. Um, mm-hmm. I hope that people engage with the book, with all of the book. Um, I think something that happens a lot with um, with some of my earlier work, um, while I was still sort of developing the politics that I have now, um, is that I feel like a lot of um, Mexican-American folks, particularly from Texas or from the Southwest, kind of latched onto my work um, and were kind of like, oh, this work makes me feel um, like proud to be Mexican or something. And I hope that uh, people don't feel that 
<laughs> when they read this book. I hope that this book disrupts um, ideas about mm-hmm. pride in 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 and allegiance to a nation state. Um, mm-hmm. That I hope comes through really clearly. Um, and I hope that the people who are looking for the book are able to find it. Um, and I hope that I'm able to find them or they're able to find me. Um, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I think that's everything. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. You hear that non-black Mexican Americans, this book is not for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, it is, but it isn't, you know, it's, it's both. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Ariana, thank you so much for talking to us at length about We Are Owed. We have taken up much of your valuable time. But before we go, one last question that we kind of ask here that's routine on new books um, is what are you working on now? Any any um, tours, any, any events that you can tell us about, look forward to? And also, are you open... To- like, are you, is, I don't know how the wording for this, like, is your booking open? Like, I don't know, for speaking engagement, for hiring, those sorts of things? Yes, thank you for asking. Um, so Alan Pelais Lopez and I are, are going on tour, virtual tour again um, this fall, um, where um, I'll be, we both have a lot of new work. Um, me thinking about We Are Owed, um, Alan has some work that they are um excited to share as well. Um, and so we do poetry performances with, um, with Q and A's. We also co-facilitate writing workshops that are very uh, political. Mm-hmm. Um, and we each have um, artist talks where we speak about our own artistic practice and take questions. Um, and so we're doing all of that for the fall. Um, and also I'm right now I am working on some new writing um, that's thinking a lot about the body, desire, gender, uh, blackness, and and black girlhood in particular, the ways that mm. it is um, not protected, um, and the the ways that I've experienced that, and and kind of had to, not had to, but um, but shown up for other black girls and women in my life um, who have needed support that was not provided to them by the world and by other people. So Mm. I'm thinking a lot about the ways that this world fails um, black girls and women in particular um, and, and the ways that that we build communities and and friendships and love and relationships with each other um, and the ways that that's sometimes not enough um, to keep us alive. Um, So that feels very uh, present for me right now. It's something that I'm writing into um, and trying to understand, trying to understand tenderness um, very deeply. Um, so that's sort of what I'm writing on right now. I have no idea when it'll be out in the world. Um, but say a prayer for me that I keep, that I keep having the words that the words keep finding me. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm sending all the good prayers and vibes towards you to when, you know, the, the words keep finding you. And also when words are not enough, other mediums of artistic expression can, can help us. Mm-hmm. Um, and shout you. out to Alan, who's sort of a looming presence mm-hmm. <laughs> in this conversation mm-hmm. and in, in every conversation. Um, <laughs> but Ariana, thank you so much for being on air with us today. I, I incredibly enjoyed it and I can't wait for people to, to buy a copy of the book, be engaged and hire you and Alan for a, a tour. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Yes. All right. Take care. You too. <laughs>